Amen. Yeah, gosh. This is my last time talking here. Well, though Nigel did sound like he was about... That, the last preach as an employee did make it sound like I'd maybe get an invite back. So um, I'll be waiting for that invite to come. But my gosh, doesn't nine and a half years fly by? Thank you so much for the last um, over nine years. It's been... Um, just such a consistent honor being a part of this community. Um, one of the things that gets to happen when you're in church leadership is you see the kind of some of the behind-the-scenes stuff in a church. Um, and some of that is just incredibly, incredibly beautiful. Um, as there's bits to the life of this church that um, most people on a day-to-day life, in the day-to-day life just won't see. Um, but behind the scenes, there's nearly always, oh gosh, someone's in need and someone is just giving silently into that need to serve them. Or someone needs something and people just go around. They don't make a big deal of it. never gets heard of back here. But the story over the last nine years has been so consistently that this community um, has been such a rich place um, to be. And the, the kind of the underneath life of the church is really where the, where the beautiful, where the beautiful, beautiful stuff um, happens, and that is so true here. Um, so just awesome. Keep keep going. And it will be really, really fun um, watching from um, a little bit more of a distance, what's it, 40 miles or something, 50 miles, um, and seeing what, what happens next here, like what's the next season for Forest Hill. Um, it's going to be a really fun thing to watch happen. I'm excited. Um, what I want to do with um, our last... Um, time doing this together today, I've got like six books up here, sorry, is take a long time, um, is I want to start in that passage that was read in Revelation chapter 19. Um, but then we're also going to kind of, what I want to, yeah, the, the thought that I want to share is one that I haven't articulated yet. Um, and so we'll see how it comes out. I might need to kind of come at it from a few different angles. Um, but what I want us to do is just look at a couple of texts together um, and compare a couple of characters. Is that okay? The first place that we're going to start um, is um, Revelation chapter 19. Um, and Nigel read it earlier. We're looking from um, verse 9, basically, um, the context here, just really, really briefly, I nearly did this whole preach, my last preach, um, kind of really studying Revelation 19, which would have been great fun. Like, all the imagery here is so cool, um, and there's so much going on. Um, but basically, it's getting to the good bit. So Revelation, there's a lot of um, really hard stuff. It's a book about the, the forces that oppress God's people and the forces that run the, the world and the forces of greed and corruption and murder and violence and war um, and pain. And it's just awful. And that's how the systems of the world work. And Revelation tells the story of how the Lamb of God undermines and completely um, brings to ruin that way of being in the world. And then the new kingdom, this kingdom of God, is set up. And in Revelation 19, we're just getting to this awesome finale moment um, where there's this amazing story of um, how God is going to bring everything together under Christ, under the Lamb who was slain, um, and um, bring his peace and bring his reign and bring his beauty. And there's this angel who has the privilege of kind of guiding John the Apostle through this vision. So John's in exile on the island of Patmos. Um, and he has these incredible visions. They're not um, just literal, this is exactly how it's going to happen. They're pictorial visions of the way that the world is and will be and the way that God is going to um, restore it. And 
it's just kind of had a really climactic moment where this figure, Babylon, um, has been destroyed. Now, Babylon stands for empire, particularly stands for the Roman Empire um, in this context for John. And so he's watching this, and he's watching the power that suppressed him, the power that is murdering his friends, um, and it's been destroyed, and it's been um, uh, taken down by, um, by God. And it's really beautiful. And then the angel has this little moment with John where he says, write this. Blessed are those, so now we're in verse 9. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then look at verse 10. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. There's this moment where John is so excited by this vision, is so excited by the beautiful news that the angel is telling him about the way that God is going to redeem and transform the world, that he kind of gets lost in the moment, lost in the wonder of it, and bows down to worship um, the angel. And then the angel says to him, you must not do that. He said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your comrades. Comrades. My translation has the word comrades in it. It's like the kind of <laughs> nice. I've got the communist Bible here, um, and uh, and you and your comrades who hold the testimony of Jesus worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then what happens? So, so you get this angel who John bows down to. And you get the sense that there's absolutely no hesitation from the angel about what to do next. There's not a moment where he's like, go on, worship me for a little bit, and then I'll hand you on to God. Like, or there's no sense that he's enjoying it. Do you know what I mean? Um, he just, his instinct is just immediately, nah, you want to direct your praise up there. I'm actually not important. I'm not a big deal. The angel just immediately gets out of the way. And the reason I think this was kind of, in my mind this week, is that that's such a beautiful picture of how we are called to be, of how we're called to be as church, of how anyone in leadership is called to be. So it's kind of pertinent, like right now, as I'm kind of moving on to something new and finishing up here. It's like, oh gosh, I wonder if I've been as much like that angel as I want to be. Does that make sense? Not that you guys have tried to worship me too many times. Uh, <laughs> But there's such a sense of unself-obsessedness about this angel because he wants, all he's about is Christ. All he's about is God. And he just wants to divert John's attention back to where it really, really matters. And then what happens next is this beautiful thing where the angel kind of disappears from view. I mean, he doesn't leave, but he just stops being John's focus at all. And there's a vision of Jesus as a rider on a horse, bringing, um, bringing justice and peace and a new time, a new reign to the earth. So cool. It's beautiful how this angel gets out of the way. There's such an unself-obsessedness to him. And then the attention can be back on the lamb. The attention can be back on the rider of this white horse. Is that cool? We might come back to some of this imagery a bit later because it's absolutely thick. Like this chapter is ridiculous um, for all that it's saying about this rider, about this lamb, about this God. Um, but hold that story in your mind and hold that character in your mind. Am I one who is like a, like a pane of glass through which God can shine? 
Or is there still a me agenda here? Is there still an us agenda in this church? Or is it just, I want to be a pane of glass through which people can see Christ, through which people look and see Christ? Now, can you, can you see why I'm struggling a little to articulate this? Um, let's go to another passage, and I'll lead us in a little reading. And th- this passage, I like how I can hear you turning, but you don't know where to go. Um, it's very impressive. Uh, we're going to Luke chapter 7. And I'm going to read from verse 36. Now, this is a very, very different story. Um, but it was on my mind this week like hard to shake off my mind this week um, as kind of speaking a similar kind of thing. Um, And so we're going to look at this, then we'll look at a couple of thoughts from it. So from verse 36, Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, (laughs) highlights that, um, having learned that he was eating at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Oh, teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they couldn't pay, he cancelled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose uh, the one for whom he cancelled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to to whom little is forgiven... Loves little. Does that make sense? The one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, that's quite a different story, isn't it? Here's the reason that I shared that one, is that in the summer... um, uh, a number of us go to a conference called INET Conference. It's kind of uh, to uh, bless our guys who live overseas when they're back um, and kind of do some training and do some uh, ministry and some prayer. And it's really, really lovely five days away together. Um, and at that conference, there were a few seminars done. And one was just a kind of Lectio Divina, like a kind of prayerful reading um, of this text. And I was kind of in, I wasn't kind of in that seminar, I was in that seminar. Um, And this passage blew me away because of the woman in it. And, okay, Um, I was struck by the difference between Simon and the woman in this passage. Um, And 
this is re- like really hard for me to articulate. So this is why we're going to have to do this from a few different angles. Okay. Um, Simon is there, and he's in this gathering, he's in his house, and he's got his mates there, he's got the people he's trying to impress there, he's got other religious leaders, he's got his um, like people who he wants to impress, um, and all he can think about is trying to play the right game. Do you see? So Jesus is in his house, Jesus is in his house, and he barely notices because he's looking at the woman, he's thinking, is she doing it right? What's she doing here? What's going on? If I speak, who will think this of me? Who will think that of me? And then you've got this woman who comes in, and it's like she's free. Like, I don't really know how to say it better than that. It's like she's free. And you don't expect it to be her that's free. You expect it to be one of the other people in the room, one of the religious people, one of the people who knows what they're talking about. But there's something about how this woman has already lost all her credibility that she's not trying to gain any. She's already lost all her social status. And so she is the only one in the room who is free in worship, who is free just to point to Christ. Does that make sense? And everyone else is there playing their games, and they miss it. And when I I read this, I started writing in my journal. I was so caught by that phrase. It's like she was already free because she was already nothing. And to the extent that I'm not nothing, I'm not free. Now, this is weird. Okay, let's, let's go somewhere else. Um, a few years ago, one of the great lovely things about also being a church leader is that you get to go to leadership conferences. Um, and largely, the way that they go is this. You pay a decent amount of money, and you go to a big conference venue with nice comfy seats that you can kind of sit in and be anonymous for a few days and just receive, and it's lovely. Um, Nigel goes and sits off in another part of the room. Um, <laughs> Never to be seen. Um, and, and then there's, there's normally kind of a few key ingredients. This is going to sound very um, uh, degradating. They are actually really useful things. But there'll be a worship leader who tries to teach you their new album, um, which just so happens to be on sale as well. Um, there'll be lots of seminars by people who've just written books. And the books will be like, here's five tips to um, actually grow your church. That ha- you know, it hasn't worked for you yet, but here's the five tips that will help you to actually grow your church, actually see revival in your local area. And everyone's doing their seminars and plugging their ministries, and it's all really, really well-intentioned. But nearly always the person who's talking on the stage, it feels like, oh, they've got an agenda. They've got something that they're trying to prove to me. They've got something that they're trying to demonstrate to me. They're trying to show themselves in some way. And then just every now and then... There's a character who's completely different on the stage. And I remember a few years ago at the HTB Leadership Conference, I was kind of high up in the um, rafters at the Royal Albert Hall. What's it? They're not called the rafters, are they? It's called the... Oh, someone. Not a box. Gallery. Yeah, the the cheap bit at the top. Um, And so, like, the figures on the stage are kind of like these tiny little pinpricks of so far away. Um, But all this session was... But it completely destroyed me. All this session was, was Nicky Gumbel interviewing an elderly cardinal in the Catholic Church. I can't remember where he was the cardinal of. I can't remember what his name was. But you know when someone's talking and you just get a sense that they've got nothing to prove. And they're just free. Do you, ever, do you know what I mean? 
you don't know what I mean, okay? Um, <laughs> um, there was such a peace about this guy. He wasn't trying to peddle an agenda. There was no book associated with the interview, but there was a calm and a joy and a slowness and a laughter and a freedom that I just, it nearly made me cry because I was like, oh my gosh, I crave that. Like I crave that ability to not care about me. To not ha- it was like he would talk exactly the same as he was talking in a room with two people in it to how he spoke in a room with, I don't know, 4,000. And there was just such a beautiful freedom and liberation about this guy where it felt like, oh, he's not trying to do anything. And because he's not trying to do anything, he's not trying to draw my attention to him, it's like the beauty of the presence of God just shines through people like that. Do you know what I mean? Okay, we'll try it from a different angle again. Um, There's uh, a a guy who lived about 800 years ago called Meister Eckhart, um, who's just stunning. He's a German theologian. He was kind of, um, I think he had the same kind of seat um, in a university or something that Thomas Aquinas had, but he came along just a little bit later. So we're talking kind of that level of intellect, that level of cool dude like Thomas Aquinas. Um, And... He, one of the things he loves to talk about is this process of kind of becoming nothing so that I can point to the one. Like just becoming empty so that I can actually be full. And he talks about it like this. You see, we're kind of dancing around, aren't we? But I think we're going to paint a picture that looks a bit fuller by the end of the, our time together. Um, he talks, he says like this. Now our Lord says, whoever renounces anything for me and for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and eternal life. But if you give it up for the sake of the hundredfold and of eternal life, then you've renounced nothing. Ooh. Indeed, if you give it up for a thousandfold return, you've renounced nothing. He says this, you must give yourself up and must do so completely if you are really to renounce something. Once a man came to me, this happened quite recently, and told me that he had given away great amounts of land and possessions in order to save his soul. But I thought to myself, what small and insignificant things you have given away. To contemplate what you've renounced is blindness and stupidity. But if you have abandoned yourself, then you have really renounced something. Those who have taken leave of themselves are so pure that the world cannot endure them. Okay, no one else in the room is excited about this, but that that kind of phrase is the kind of thing that excites something in me. Those who have taken leave of themselves are so pure that the world cannot endure them. Like what the world kind of craves and at the same time can't stand is a bunch of people who care so little about themselves. They're, they're not, that, not that you're self-effacing, because that's still just a form of the same old thing, um, but just there's almost nothing here. It's just God left. I, can you see why I'm struggling to articulate this again? Um, and yet there's a longing in me for this. Let's look at it a slightly different way again. There's a... Um, a a group that's kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous in the States that's for veterans. Um, and it's quite an exclusive group. It's kind of secretive. Um, there's a bunch of people who meet every day in, oh, once or, I think every day, um, in a hall. 
And they have this really weird initiation rite. I think, and maybe I've told this story before, I can't remember. And this initiation rite goes like this. If someone wants to join the group, they have to show up to the, to the group at a specific time. And when they come in, no one looks at them or talks to them. Everyone is around the edge of the room with their head bowed like this. So it's like, what have I come to? But in the middle of the room is a chair. And then across from that chair, someone else sits. And they're the interviewer. And so you come in and you sit on this chair. And the interviewer, the interviewer asks this alcoholic a question. And the question is, what do you love the most? And, you know, normally the alcoholic will respond something like, I love my wife the most. And at that moment, everyone in the room looks up and screams, Bulge! <laughs> and then they look back down. I know, edgy. And then, can I say it? That would be more effective, but there's delicate people in the room. Um, And then the interviewer will ask the same question again. What do you love the most? And then they might say, you know, my kids. And again, everyone looks up and screams, bullshit. Oh, (laughs) it came out a bit more. (laughs) I'm not making it up there. I'm not just uh, saying it because it's fun. Um, until eventually they ask the question, what do you love the most? And the person responds, alcohol. And at that moment, everyone in the room stands up and they form a line in front of the person and they embrace them and they weep together, one by one. Every single person embraces them and welcomes them into the group. And it's like that process of being brought to nothing. Do you see? They come in and they've still got something to prove. They've still got an agenda. They've still got, I still care about how I'm seen. And they have to come to nothing. You have to come to complete nothinglessness. And then you find acceptance. That's the story of this woman in this passage. That's why she's so beautiful for us to read. Because she's reached the point where she's lost the game. Where in a religious context, she's got absolutely nothing left um, to prove. Now, here's where we're going to go. There's kind of two things that I think these people have in common. This angel and this woman. The first one we've just kind of talked about a little bit is that they've kind of become nothing. Now, I don't really know how to say it better than that, but it's kind of like they've found freedom. They've become nothing. They've, you know... They've lost their ego. They've lost their agenda. It's beautiful. But there's another thing as well, and that is they are both absolutely captivated by the image of Christ. and by the per- Well, not by the image of Christ, by the person of Christ. So you get this um, angel um, in Revelation 19, and his whole intention is to point John to the object of both of their desire, which is the rider, the beautiful uh, lamb, the lamb that was slain, God. And he points him to him. And then you've got this woman who knows almost nothing. Just think about the difference between these two guys. The angel has been contemplating the Lord's beauty for trillions of years. If anyone should be bored (laughs) of who Christ is, bored of worship, bored, like I heard it before, heard it on Sundays before, it should be this angel, right? Do you ever get to the stage where you think, I've just kind of heard it all, to be honest. 
and worship kind of becomes a little bit stale. If, it, if that should be true for anyone, it should be true for this angel. He could have written all the theology books that have ever existed five times. You know, like this, this I don't know why five times. This angel knows all that can conceivably be known by a created being about the Christ, and yet is still driven to worship. Now think about the woman. What does she know about Jesus? I think maybe almost nothing. Like, she knows that he's made a difference in her life. She probably couldn't articulate the finer points of Trinitarian theology. She probably couldn't talk to you about the atonement or why the cross matters or that there would be a cross at all. She probably doesn't realize that he's going to die, that that's important, that he's going to raise to life. She knows almost nothing about Jesus and yet is driven to worship. Isn't that cool? We've got these two pictures of people at fundamentally different points in their spiritual journeys. And they are both absolutely obsessed with this Jesus. Because the important thing isn't how much we know, is it? The important thing is that our knowledge is driving us towards encounter. Is that we're still hungry. Is that we're still um, hungry for more of Jesus. Um, There's this beautiful expression in Revelation in the passage where it talks about, it's talking about the rider and how, you know, he's got this um, sword in his mouth. It's talking about the power of the words of Jesus to bring change. It talks about the robe that he's wearing that's dipped in blood. That's not his enemy's blood. It's his own blood. It's, it's soaked with his own sacrifice. And that's how um, he rules and conquers. Um, but then there's this little curious phrase. Um, let's go back there. Which is just really, really lovely. It says, verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. That means he sees me. Remember what Ruth was saying in the worship was so beautiful. um, That God sees everything about us. And where we ever have doubts about our worth, struggles, and we look at others and we think, oh my gosh, they're doing so much better than me. Isn't it lovely when things tie together a little? Um, And yet Jesus sees. His eyes are flames of fire and he loves us. He loves us. Um, And it says then, um, on his head are many crowns, and he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. What's the point in having a name that no one knows but yourself? I think what that's trying to say is this, that however much you know about Jesus, there is always more to learn. There's always more to see. He is always bigger. He is always richer. He is never contained in your box. You will, never, you will never fully understand Jesus to the point that you can legitimately say, I'm now bored. If you're bored, you're bored of your wrong understanding of Jesus, not bored of Jesus. Does that make sense? Um, we're reading in our book club. We're reading this book, How to Pray, by uh, Pete Gregg. And it's really, really fun. Doing this book group has been one of the funnest things I've done for a long time. Um, He talks about this, about his understanding um, of God. And he talks about kind of growing up with this very comfortable um, idea of, oh, God's my dad, he loves me, bloody blah. Um, And that's really, really great. He says, um, uh, we are prodigals loved. As in the familiar aspect of God is really, really beautiful. He said, and yet I'm increasingly finding comfort and an unexpected intimacy in God's hiddenness, his otherness. The very fact that our father is in heaven and not here on earth. I walk outside at night and feel insignificant yet connected. 
part of something transcendent and vast. I whisper my prayers beneath the silent star fields, sensing that I'm reaching the divinity within all this mystery in a way that my loudest, most desperate and defiant shouts might not. God seems infinitely close, dangerous yet familiar, faithful but unpredictable, loving but not necessarily nice. And he goes on like this, and this kind of draws together in some ways both parts of what we've been talking about. Um, He says, after being told again and again over the years how deeply God loves me as if no one else existed and how powerfully he wants to use me, hey, we can all be history makers, that's a quote. Um, It comes as a considerable relief to finally discover that I'm actually not that big a deal. A A bit part actor, certainly not the lead in the play of someone else's life. I am, as the psalmist said, just dust. I am, as Isaiah says, like grass that grows, withers and dies in a day. I'm a child who finally knows enough to know that I don't know much and that it's perfectly possible to trust in things I don't fully understand. Perhaps it's better, after all, to have a mustard seed than a mountain. I'd rather, this is the key line, by the way, nearly there. I'd rather have a little faith in a great, big, unshakable God than a great, big, unshakable faith in a little God unworthy of the title. Isn't that cool? And that's what we're invited into is this hugeness, this ever-expanding picture of Jesus. And that's what we're invited to focus on. So what do I still need to do? Not loads. Let's do Hebrews. Because Hebrews 12 feels like a good place to go right now. Hebrews chapter 12. This is how the writer of Hebrews puts it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely. It's saying put down your agendas. Put down your need to be seen as holy. Put down our need to be recognized. Put down our need to be anything. Put down our need as a church to be known or to be whatever. I don't know what needs we have as a church, but do you know what I mean? Put down all of everything, all of our agendas, and let's run with perseverance the race set before us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. That's really all of it, isn't it? Let's fix our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. feels like maybe it would be good to kind of have a time of meditating on this and kind of going through it a little bit together, reflectively. So let's try and do that, okay? We're going to kind of do some prayer stuff do some reflection. Let me get the Luke chapter back. And we're going to use the story in the passage in Luke to help guide us through this a little bit. Um, So just where you are, let's get a little bit comfy and we're going to spend some time praying and just inviting the Holy Spirit to speak to us kind of through this story, okay? So I'll guide us a little bit, but there's going to be some... Um, time to think. You could have the passage open in front of you if you don't like time to um, just think. So um, have the passage open or um, just listen. And I'll kind of guide us through some thoughts 
it's from space for thinking, really, rather than thoughts, on Luke 7. And maybe it's worth just um, initially imagining ourselves as a part of that gathering at Simon's house. And there's a new teacher in town. He seems to have um, a lot of stories. He seems to be able to do miracles. Beyond that, maybe you don't know much. But you're in this house and it's full. And Jesus is talking and people are asking him questions. And then maybe just behind you, you feel this kind of nudging and pushing and jostling. And a woman starts kind of beating a path past. This kind of strikes you as odd because most of the people in the room are guys, but... Also because you recognize this woman. You know her as someone who's been talked about as um, sinful, as kind of dirty, as someone to keep away from. And so everyone's kind of looking at her thinking, what will she do next? But she just beats a path straight to Jesus. And begins to anoint his feet, wipe them with her hair, kiss them, and just show complete disregard for everyone else in the room except Jesus. Holy Spirit, what is it that you want to show us through this woman? What do you want to invite me into today? And Lord, we admit that so often we're more like Simon in this story, where we sort of come to learn, but we also, just all the time, we have our own agendas. Like, I want people to like me. I want to seem to be kind of in control or um, like I know what's going on. But God, we don't want to be like the Simons who playing all our kind of games together in this place and then miss your presence. So Holy Spirit, would you just be kind and highlight maybe areas in my life, in our hearts, um, of things that stop us from showing this kind of love, from being this available to you? from being nothing and help us to lay them down Lord we want to be like that angel where we just point back to you all the time where all day every day our whole lives say have you seen that one have you seen that one Lord I, I guess I want to pray that for all of us in this room today and for Um, me and for this church. Lord, would we be a people just captivated by you? Really, that's what we want. Would we be a people just captivated by you? 
with ever more to learn and ever deeper to go. Help us, Holy Spirit. Amen.